From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast. The U.S. Supreme Court rules travel ban 3.0 can move forward for now. It is a very disappointing decision. Advocates from all sides react. A lot of these Muslims that are coming to this country, mm-hmm. they want Sharia law that's, here that's, and they want sorry, different things here. Leonard, that's BS. It's already happening. That's the oral arguments at the U.S. Court of Appeals and what the ruling means for travelers. They've had a banner couple of years exonerating men and women wrongfully convicted. We think that this is a monster, somebody who should be locked away for the rest of their lives. And what if it turns out they didn't do it? The errors in criminal justice and one nonprofit's push for change. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast and feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is Travel Ban 3.0, which prohibits travelers from six mainly Muslim countries, as well as those from North Korea and some from Venezuela. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the ban could go into effect, overturning district court injunctions. A major win for the Trump administration. Here's reaction from the Philadelphia Council on American-Islamic Relations. Very disappointed in the Supreme Court decision. The Fourth and Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals heard oral arguments this week. The challengers have focused on statements by President Trump during his campaign, promising to ban Muslims from America. Now the issue is at a head. Whether the Trump administration committed religious discrimination with regard to this ban or whether it was a proper exercise of immigration laws. Rulings by the Court of Appeals will likely go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court. So what does this mean for travelers? What's the reaction from the Islamic community? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Philip Weiss, managing attorney at Highest Pennsylvania, an organization working to shore up rights of immigrants and refugees. We have Marwan Creedy, executive director of the Arab American Community Development Corporation. And finally, Linwood Holland, a Republican ward leader here in Philadelphia. Hello, gentlemen. Welcome to Flashpoint. This is my first all-male panel. (laughs) Um, And so let's jump right in. Uh, First off, I want to get reaction from you, Marwan. I mean, Mm -hmm. this week we heard from the U.S. Supreme Court allowing that travel ban 3.0 to move forward. What was the reaction that you heard? Well, it was a little puzzling. I mean, this travel ban is just so obviously discriminatory and racist against Muslims. I mean, it's a Muslim ban. Let's be honest. We couldn't really imagine why the court would uphold it. It It was kind of shocking. Yeah. And the immediate uh, result of that, folks from the eight countries that are impacted Mm -hmm. can no longer travel here. Is is that correct, Philip? Yeah, that's correct. What the Supreme Court has all said is basically lifted the temporary injunction that was put in place by the district courts because the circuit courts are going to be ruling on this pretty quickly. So we're still waiting to hear an underlying decision on the merits of the case. And I'm fairly confident and hopeful that the circuit courts will find in favor of the plaintiff. Yeah, and it's unclear at this point what the court, I mean, is, is going to do because there's you can't really read the tea leaves here. So, um, Lynn, what has been the conservative response to this? So we're looking at the law as it states how these bans have been put in place. As long as they're followed by the order of law, I think they're, 
you know, they're okay. Do you feel like there are national security reasons that back this up? We see events that are happening around the world that we definitely don't want to happen in our country. So anytime we can do measures to safeguard our citizens, that's what we're supposed to do. These measures are exactly in place at the right time. With the oral arguments, what the plaintiffs have said is that there has been zero findings presented Mm -hmm. that justify uh, this travel ban. Originally, it was six countries, all Muslim countries. Now, you know, they added North Korea and there was a Venezuela that was added. Did it change whether or not you see it as a Muslim ban? It's definitely a Muslim ban and it plays to its white nationalist base. Let's face it. If you look at the specifics about the North Koreans, North Koreans don't travel to the United States. I mean, that's ridiculous. And in Venezuela, it only has to do with various people in high political position. So it is definitely a Muslim ban. It's a law that should be overturned. I mean, Linwood segregation, Jim Crow were laws. Those were legal laws. They were wrong. And and we got to fight discrimination wherever we see them. What is their basic argument? And then what is the argument in response to that? I struggle to find any basis in law for this travel ban. And the, the issue that we need to kind of step back and, and, and look at w- what actually happens when an immigrant or non-immigrant seeks to come into the United States. Mm. Not as if someone just gets on an airplane and comes to the United States, United States and then that person comes in. I mean, there's extensive screening, certainly from all of these countries prior to the administration. So if somebody wants to come in on a tourist visa from Chad, from Libya, from Yemen or what have you, that individual needs to submit an application go through extensive security clearances to, to obtain that visa. If the Department of State finds that that person is in fact a danger, that person will not get a visa. If we're looking at the security concerns, this is precisely undermines United States mm-hmm. security concerns. The United States gets a lot of information and relies on individuals who are in these countries where um, some terrorists may find refuge. So if you think about it, Linwood, how does this make us look when we're banning, we're turning against individuals that we have to rely on. We sometimes blow things out of proportion. Like they mentioned, it's a process to come into the United States. And they're banning terrorists from coming into the United States. So if people... They're banning all people from those countries. They're banning all people from those countries. Well, they've they've seemed to form a base of intelligence that we don't have access to to determine some of these people who might be threats to our country. And it's fair to say that we don't have all the information to understand who these people are threats to our country, what they have planned for us, and how they feel about America. Do you trust that the Trump administration has valid reasons for this? I feel they have valid reasons until we find different that they didn't. Our government usually works in secrecy to protect us. Right now, everything that the government does is under such an eye that everything the media knows, the other country knows, and everybody knows— think we're at a disadvantage when we do that. And a lot of people who support President Trump say that the media is unfair and that we are requesting information that maybe we should not have access to. Um, but at the end of the day, you still have to hold this up under constitutional standards and you have to let the court know. 2015, when he was running for office, he made a statement that we're going to do a complete and full ban on all Muslims coming to the United States. Well, he did that. He picked countries where there were no Trump hotels, like Saudi Arabia. They were the ones who sent 16 of the 19 9-11 hijackers. Well, they're not on the ban because there's business that they can do with the Saudis, and he's friendly with the Saudi government. It's not well thought out. It, the, the information is lacking. Now, when we talk about the practical considerations, who are these people that are now banned? Right. So, I mean, it's complicated because it depends upon countries, right? For Venezuelans, it's geared specifically towards individuals in positions of government. In Chad, Libya, and Yemen, it's all uh, all immigrants and, and non-immigrants. But 
So what's interesting is those who obtain valid visas prior to the issuance of the ban are actually able to still come in. What's not happening are new visas are not being issued to those individuals unless they're able to avail themselves of very specified uh, waivers. But this isn't the only group. One of the issues that we just dealt with was the rollback of TPS mm-hmm. um, for the Haitian community. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not the only uh, community that lost TPS status. They literally have 18 months before they have to start going back. I mean, these are individuals who don't have terroristic ties. There's no argument that they do, but the, the, the earthquake drama is not over. You didn't bring them here to be permanent. You brought them here because of a situation that they had. It's a temporary visa that expires at a certain time. Now, I don't think they should be forced back before their conditions to live are available. We being humanitarians around the world, we have to help people out and we have to protect ourselves. So it's a thin line there. For many years, the doors have been wide open. Realistically, with our economy and everything, how many people can fit in here? How many actual people can live in the United States and actually enjoy the benefits? Mm. It's not that wealthier country with maximum amount of people in here. I mean, you got to face it. And a lot of people who support President Trump feel that way. I mean, what's the response to something like that? Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. What people don't understand is a lot of these Muslims that are coming to this country are not abandoned their style of life. Mm-hmm. They want Sharia law that, here, and they I'm want sorry, different things Leonard, here. Leonard, that's BS. It's already happening. That's you BS. Can see it in, you can mm. see it already happening Where? in different countries around the world. You can see it happening in France, it's not and you happening. can see it happening in Europe. And eventually, they will take over the government and put people in place to make Sharia law the <laughs> binding law. I mean, you can't disregard the populations are changing. Linwood, you can't disregard Linwood, that. Linwood, Grow up. That is the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard. I go to France. I go to Europe. There is no such thing as Sharia law in Europe. There is no such thing as no-go zones. The prime minister of Britain, the mayor of London, the mayor of Paris all thought Trump was out of his mind when he was talking about it. And we don't need the immigrants here because we have— Yes, we do. We have, if, we have people that already are in this country that need a base for employment to take care of their families. We need to bring those people up that already are here. We don't need to bring people in to take their Well, to be fair, Linwood, I mean, Philadelphia, the mm-hmm. population in the city right. had not grown for decades. Right. And we recently had population growth, and the city has attributed that growth to immigrants. It's not like we don't get any benefit from them being here. Oh, There's... we get benefit from anybody that comes in that's productive. And I think that's what the immigration thing is. You want productive people when you people are scared. When it comes to thinking about terrorists, which makes people say, hold it, I don't want immigrants in here. What about white guys in Las Vegas? Come on. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, but I think you can can put a scenario to everything. Well, I'm telling you my scenario that I live and I see. I mean, two points I like to bring up. I mean, one is the economic argument. Unfortunately, we've kind of fallen into a trap of this idea that it's a zero-sum game, right? If one immigrant comes in, that's one one, one U.S. citizen who doesn't get a job. And The fact is, that's not true. And there's been repeated studies year after year indicating that increased immigration simply benefits, increases the pie. And the other point I'd like to go back to is this idea, this question of fear of Sharia law. Be they from Muslim countries, be they from Latin American countries, you know, the tradition of immigration to the United States has always been the same. What happens is people integrate, they become Americans, they change America, which is good. Everybody changes a little bit. Our country is is stronger because of the diversity. Nobody's trying to take over and create small little singular religious outposts. It's just not happening. I want to point out the the recent uptick 
in hate crimes and hateful acts throughout the Commonwealth, also in Philadelphia. I mean, Marwan, the your very office right. had a pig's head thrown at thrown it, at it uh, a while back right. and, and had had hate calls. There's more fear in the Arab and Muslim community now than after 9-11. And look, I thought George Bush was one of the worst presidents ever. But at least after 9-11, he went to a mosque. He said that we're all American. President Trump, on the other hand, is not going to have an iftar dinner. He does not invite people over for Muslim holidays. I mean, he's basically saying that there's some groups that are welcome and some groups are not. People are afraid. They're like, should I lawyer up? Should I have somebody on speed dial? I think it's fear on both sides. I mean, if you go back, you still have some people that fear 9-11. And they are pretty much biased to, you know, Muslims. I'm not. But it's the same thing on your side. There's fear of Muslims that think that people here are going to harm them because of the rhetoric that's out there that Muslims are, all Muslims are terrorists. I, I don't believe that at all. Yeah, but the, the difference, Linwood, is that our president is using that. I mean, our president is stoking those fears. And that's wrong. Well, everybody has their opinion, you know. And I mean, you, But you support the way that he's handling that. Some things I agree and some things I think I would handle different. You know, some people just have a personal vendetta against the president and, and nothing that he do or tries to do is going to be good. And I'm trying to look at it like, okay, what is he doing to make me uh, feel really good about being American, a veteran American at that? I want to give you each 30 seconds to... To have a closing thought. We have uh, some great leadership in Pennsylvania. we got a, a great mayor, Kenny, who's very pro-immigrant. We have uh, a governor who's really out there. Support those people and support your immigrants. And if you're scared of Muslims, go meet one. Muslims and Arabs are just like anyone else. If we let the rhetoric continue from the administration, simply what we're going to see is increased fear on all sides. It's just going to undermine security for all. And final word, Linwood? I believe that every citizen should have the right to live in the United States as long as they abide by the laws in the United States and they follow the procedures to come to the United States. And hopefully this is the beginning and it'll open up dialogue instead of the attack among People with the president against them, let's dialogue with them. That's the only way it's going to come together. I want to say thank you to Philip White, Marwan Creedy, and Lewin Holland for coming on and discussing this Flashpoint in the news. Next up, they've been on the front lines to freedom in case after case of wrongful conviction. We have people right now in prison serving life sentences for a tragic accident that was not a crime. The astounding error rate in criminal justice and what one Pennsylvania nonprofit is doing to change it all. Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one of the issues that get Philly residents hot under the collar is wrongful conviction. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, more than 2,100 men and women who were wrongfully convicted and incarcerated have since been freed since 1989. In Pennsylvania, 68 men and women who collectively spent 718 years behind bars have been exonerated. But in comes the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. Founded in 2008, the nonprofit has had a banner couple of years securing the freedom of five men and one woman. With me in the studio to talk about this issue is Executive Director Marissa Bluestein. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you, Sherry. So you are one of the fiercest advocates I know, and I've seen you in action. For those folks who have never heard 
of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. Could you explain? We look to identify people who are convicted of a crime that they did not commit. And we fight mm-hmm. as hard as we can to exonerate them, to get them out of prison and return them to society. But in addition to that, it's not just about fixing those one cases, a case at a time. It's also about trying to help reform the system so we stop committing those errors over and over again. And the percentages I've heard vary as far as the number of errors, anywhere from four to up to 12 percent that I've heard of wrongful convictions. That's right. A study just came out about two weeks ago, subsidized by the National Institutes of Justice, which is an arm of the Department of Justice. And it had an 11 to 12 percent error rate where where there was a sexual assault component. On death row, we estimate it's about 4% of people who are actually innocent across the United States who are on death row, potentially right now, are actually innocent of the crime. Not innocent of a lesser crime, actually innocent, were not there, did not commit the crime, but they're sitting on death row nonetheless. When you talk about criminal justice, if they label someone a criminal in America, they're like, throw away the key, this person did this, and we have this misconception. But when they hear that someone's actually innocent, it gives them pause. Well, how about for cases where it's not just that they're innocent, there was no crime. Wow. We have a number of cases where there was no crime, where people were convicted of an arson or having hurt, harmed, or even tragically killed a child through what we called shaken baby syndrome or through having shaken a baby. We know you can't do that. That's not, it's not medically possible. So we have people right now in prison serving life sentences for a tragic accident. That was not a crime. People trust the criminal justice system. They trust juries. They trust judges. They trust prosecutors. How does it happen? We need to have faith in our criminal justice system, no doubt. But in terms of how it happens, we know that there are certain types of error which occur over and over and over again when people get convicted of crimes they did not commit. Yeah. For example, eyewitness errors. They can be mistaken. That I mean, as solid as that evidence sounds and as reliable as that evidence sounds, it can be wrong. Or people give confessions under coercion from police will confess to a crime they did not commit and they know nothing about. But because of the way that interrogations are conducted in the United States, that information gets leaked through the interrogation process. And the suspect then kind of spits it back because they don't think there's any way out other than to do that. Mm -hmm. We know there's forensic error. We know that there are errors where police or prosecutors don't turn over exculpatory evidence as they should. We know there are a variety of errors that go into creating wrongful convictions. I have had the pleasure and I've actually been teased in the newsroom because they're like, Terry always covers when people get out of prison. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I do. Well, it's an extraordinary event. It is. I, I feel like it definitely is. And it deserves the same amount of coverage as people give when they send someone to prison. And that's the irony. I mean, in a lot of these cases, they're very high profile going in. And we think that this is a monster, somebody who should be locked away for the rest of their lives. And what if it turns out they didn't do it? We don't have that same level of fanfare coming out. That person's not restored to their prior life. You can't give them back. They're 15, 20, 30 years in prison. Could you explain the type of mindset it takes to remain hopeful despite the trauma of incarceration? People who come out of prison suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. People who Mm. are innocent and come out of prison have an even higher level of post-traumatic stress disorder along the lines of Vietnam vets who saw combat. How do they get through that? I have no idea. I don't think I could do it. But these men and these women have this extraordinary courage and faith and hope. And they cling to that. And they know that one day they're getting up because they know that one day this is going to get fixed. People always say, well, I know they're going to make a million dollars and sue the state. But that's not true. 
Well, but why do people think that? Because it's so wrong. Yeah. It is so wrong. It's so wrong that the state did this to Dante and Sean and Marshall. They did nothing wrong. So the automatic feeling is, well, they're going to have to get something because we have to right that wrong somehow. And yet they don't. Yeah. It's almost impossible to sue police and literally impossible to sue prosecutors. The burden is extraordinarily high. And Pennsylvania is one of a very small minority of states that don't compensate people who are exonerated for crimes they did not commit. So in Pennsylvania, I go pick up my clients. I bring them home. I, we find them places to live. We help find them jobs. You go across the river to New Jersey, and they'll get thirty-five dollars or $50,000 per year of wrongful incarceration. I want people to kind of wrap their minds around, first of all, being snatched out of your house, told you did something. You're thinking to yourself, okay, when the trial is over, they're going to, exactly. it's go, I'm going to get a not guilty out of this. Fine. I'm not even I'm worried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're told guilty. Then you're in there. Writing, writing, writing. How do they even get your attention? They just have to send me a letter. We read every letter. We respond to every letter. So when we opened our doors in 2009, I think we had about two or 300 letters waiting wow. for us. And we encourage that. We want to hear from people. We want to find those cases. And I get a lot of letters, people. by the way. So Please people send them do my hear way. this. <laughs> somebody's grandmother is listening. Somebody's mom. It's just about sending us a letter explaining the situation. We'll take it from there. And we'll take more information as we need to go forward to evaluate the case. But... We want to hear from everybody who is in prison who doesn't belong there. That's yeah. our job. This is not a quick process. We are not a big operation. We're a very small operation. We only have four lawyers who work the entire state. So we're relying on law students, on volunteer lawyers, on other people with legal training to help us evaluate the cases and decide which cases we want to we, – we can take, which cases meet our mandate. And then once we're able to finally get through all that material and do that evaluation, then we still have to go investigate and see where the facts lead. And if that investigation yields information that supports innocence, because that's where the facts go, then we can finally get into court and try to litigate and try to exonerate somebody. But it is a very long process. Because it could take years. I mean, it can take years. Yeah. And And the cases that we're seeing now are cases we started back in 2009 or 2010. But there are very few of us and a very big need. And then even when we go through it, facts are what they are. And either they are able to unfold in a way that supports an innocence claim or they don't. And you know, so the investigation takes time and then the litigation takes time. And I want to talk about the the new DA. We have a, you know, DA, a DA, Larry Krasner. He hasn't been seated yet, but he's already been called one of the most, you know, progressive district attorneys in the country. He hasn't even sat in his new desk. How about that? <laughs> and uh, how do you feel about him? He was not shy about saying on the campaign trail that he wants to revitalize the conviction review unit. He believes that there are many, many more cases that should be found and that the prosecutor's office has a role in helping to exonerate and free people quicker. And I certainly hope that he stays to to that. I mean, I see no reason why he wouldn't. It seems very sincere in everything that he said about that. Um, And then along with that comes a wide variety of reforms to try Mm. to prevent the wrongful Mm -hmm. convictions from happening. Are they still prosecuting cases where there's only eyewitness testimony? If there's no other evidence but an eyewitness, are, are they going forward with those prosecutions or not? Because a lot of prosecution offices are not because the risk of a, a wrongful conviction are so high. Reforming the way they give discovery. Right now mm. in, in the Commonwealth, in almost every county, the prosecutor decides what information goes over. One reform we, we'd like to see in the office is what they call open file discovery, where unless there's a, a possibility of danger to a witness or, or other you know, individual – um, or if it's unless it's precluded by law, all the information they have gets given over. 
So you don't have cases where 15 years later, 20 years later, you find out something wasn't turned over that should have been. Just turn it all over. Yeah. And get it done with and have the trial on the facts as they are. Don't try to, you know, play these games about it. And that's if they implement those two f- changes about going open file and and beefing up the conviction review unit, I think we're going to see some serious change in Philadelphia in the next few months. So and and do you feel a sense of hope because this the issue of exoneration has uh, made the news quite a bit lately. Um, I think there was recently an exoneration in the past week or two um, from another area of the country. And so you always hear about this right. every time you turn around. Do you feel a sense of hope that change is coming? Well, last year there were 166 exonerations in real time in the United States. That's two a week, more than three a week. My math mm-hmm. is not that good, mm-hmm. but that's three a week. And that's, I, I think that's a, that's deplorable that we have that high, that many people are wrongly incarcerated. No one can say that we're catching all of them. Mm-hmm. So we need to be able to quicken the pace that we are re- reviewing these cases because the individuals are just sitting there getting older and in prison and making it even more difficult for them to be able to come out and reenter society in a good, productive, positive way. So I do I have hope? I always have hope. You know, I just want to say congratulations to the Pennsylvania Innocence Project and to all those folks who listen out, you know, hold, hold faith. If you know you didn't do it, keep writing. Right? Keep writing. And please provide the information so people can reach out to you. Innocence Project, P-A, all one word, dot O-R-G. And our our email address is innocenceprojectpa at temple.edu. Our mailing address is just 1515 Market Street, Suite 300, Philadelphia 19102. I love that you guys read every single letter. Every letter. And respond. Marissa Bluestein, thank you for being on Flashpoint. Thanks so much for having me. Next up philanthropic empowerment for South Jersey women. Our goal is to make it 100% of what comes in is what goes out each year. A charitable coalition, the amount they are raising, and why they're giving it all away. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and this week, it's about Impact 100 South Jersey, a global women's collective giving initiative. And I'm here with Kyle Ruffin, one of the founders, who's going to explain what this unique organization is. Welcome to the KYW studios. Thank you. I am happy to be here. What exactly are the women of South Jersey trying to do? We are trying to create transformational change by raising a large amount of money that will go to a nonprofit organization in our community. So our goal is to get at least 100 women to make a membership contribution of $1,000. And once we collect that money, we will then issue a $100,000 or more grant to an organization that we as members select. Why create an initiative like this? Because South Jersey nonprofits compete with a lot of Philadelphia nonprofits. It's harder for South Jersey organizations to benefit. We felt it was important to offer this kind of thing to nonprofits and to the women of our community who very much want to have a philanthropic impact on our region. So what would giving a $100,000 grant to a South Jersey organization do for that organization? Our mission is to provide core grants for organizations. So it's not based on a program that people are starting or to support. It's about how can we help a nonprofit 
that has a budget between $300,000 and $5 million, how can we help them advance to the next level when it comes to something within their core mission? And we have three focus areas. They are women, children, and families, arts and culture, and then education and professional development. What has been the reaction once you announced this? We are thrilled about the number of women who have committed, uh, the number of women who have already made their membership contribution. We still have a ways to go before we reach 100, but we have just started our push with information sessions around the South Jersey area, and we have a few planned, and anybody who's interested in learning when they are can visit our website, impact100sj.org. We've seen a lot of enthusiasm around this mission that empowers women and that gives us an opportunity to be stewards of our own resources. And so you're looking for 100 women, but y'all not going to turn away women uh, over 100, right? We are absolutely not. Uh, the more money we raise, the more money we can give out. Our goal is to make it 100% of what comes in is what goes out each year. So each year, we will be looking for 100 women to, or at least 100 women, to make that uh, that $1,000 contribution. In a way, it's philanthropic empowerment. Not only the, the giving part is a valuable pro- part of the process, but The process that we go through to pick the grantees is very thorough. It's very thoughtful. Uh, Volunteers, they do site visits. They get to know these organizations. And in other communities that have Impact 100s, some women have ended up joining the boards of these organizations because they learned about things they didn't even know were happening in their communities. So it's not just a way to raise money and put money in the community. It's a way to raise also kind of human capital for organizations in our communities that are doing Now you're going to get the women. Our deadline to have the 100 women lined up, or 100 or more, uh, is December 31st. We will, in January, announce how much we raised. At that point, we will begin the process of asking nonprofits to apply, and we will spend the spring actually vetting all the different applicants. In June, we anticipate holding our annual meeting at which finalists from each of those focus areas that I mentioned will come present to all of the members, and we will vote that day, and it will be announced who wins the $100,000 grant. Should we Whoa, that, that right there. That's like intense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is really, really cool. And it also, I think, encourages nonprofits to set their games up. That's part of this as well, is to give nonprofits the, the tools and the conduit to really talk themselves up mm-hmm. and One of the things that we would like to see uh, is that, you know, we give $300,000 grants because we've raised so much money that we don't have to turn any of the finalist organizations away. That would be the dream. We've seen Impact 100s around the country. We are the 46th chapter in the United States. Uh, But we've seen these organizations give multiple Mm -hmm. $100,000 grants. In, In fact, Philadelphia this year gave three $100,000 $100,000 grants, and then a couple of small grants because they have 360 members. Wow. So we don't want to turn anybody away. And I know December is going to be a busy month for you ladies. December is very busy. Uh, our website is impact100sj.org. There's a lot of information on it. There are descriptions about the committees that people can join. Well, thank you so much, Kyle Ruffin, one of the founding members of the new Impact 100 giving uh, Collective Giving Initiative Impact 100 South Jersey. Good luck. And I can't wait to hear how much you raise come January. 
That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know, and we'll walk you through the flames. As Abraham Lincoln once said, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, we'll be because we destroyed ourselves. Let's keep America free. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.